What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since the dawn of civilization, humans have been fascinated with what lies beyond planet Earth. Our ancestors worshipped celestial bodies, studied the path of the stars, and theorized about our place in the untold galaxies of space. In 1608, Dutch eyeglass maker Hans Lippershey patented the first telescope. The following year, Galileo created a more advanced version and pointed it at the skies. A whole new universe was unfurled. For the first time, humans could gaze at the moon's haunting craters and fathom the wisps of the Milky Way. Mankind was transfixed. The cosmos lay bare before us and stretched infinitely into oblivion. In the spirit of human progress, we embarked on an exploration into the great unknown. But in our excitement, we were unprepared to confront another reality. Space like Earth, was yet another arena for human struggle and unrealized dreams. It was yet another stage upon which superpowers could compete, and the pretext for some of our most outrageous expenses, ethical compromises, and catastrophic failures. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. For the past 10 weeks, we exposed the dark side of dating. Now we're switching gears as we embark on an investigation into mankind's ultimate frontier, space. Over the next 10 weeks, we'll probe the dubious factors that underlie our greatest expeditions, bringing to light the suspicious secrets and blatant disasters that have defined the past 80 years of space exploration. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream The Dark Side of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side of in the search bar. Today, we're setting the scene of intergalactic exploration by learning what exactly the space race was. From the end of World War II in 1945 until Apollo 11 reached the moon in 1969, the United States and the Soviet Union were locked in a technological competition that culminated in the space race. But what were the true motivations behind this rivalry? And given their origins, should they actually be called milestones? Fear-mongering, government schemes, and nuclear weapons were just a few of the real reasons that two nations engaged in a desperate contest to reach outer space. When we think of the space race today, the textbook image of an American flag on the moon comes to mind. We remember Neil Armstrong's footprint and the excitement of a new frontier. But the fact is, America's journey into space was not born out of this same sheer wonder. Quite the opposite, we were desperate. And to understand the source of this desperation, one would have to go back to August 14, 1945, the end of World War II. On that day, the Japanese Axis troops unconditionally surrendered. The Allies had won. A collective sigh could be heard around the Western world. The war had been the deadliest in all of Earth's history. An estimated 70 million people had perished, roughly 3% of the world's population at the time. But as the Allies emerged from the fray, bloody and victorious, the primal tensions of World War II lingered. Namely, whose country was the greatest? And who might overthrow who next? If the war had signaled anything, it was that a new era of weaponry was at hand. Look no further than the final blows, the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. As many as 150,000 Japanese people had been obliterated upon impact, and tens of thousands more died from injuries and the effects of radiation. Unsurprisingly, Germany too had been experimenting with nuclear weapons and rocket launching technology long before the Nazis surrendered. Every nationality was now capable of inflicting ultimate destruction on their future enemies. Or at least that's how it seemed. Aside from America's atomic bombs, it was uncertain which countries possessed weapons of mass destruction or who was more advanced in their technology. This caused an atmosphere of fear and suspicion. Nowhere was this more apparent than between the United States and the Soviet Union. The two countries had a long history of mistrust. And while World War II had caused them to cooperate out of sheer necessity, Without a shared enemy, the nations quickly distanced themselves. As soon as World War II ended, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin drew the metaphorical Iron Curtain between Russian territories and the rest of the world, isolating them from the Western eye. This made the U.S. deeply suspicious. Communism was the antithesis to everything the U.S. stood for, an alien threat to the capitalist ideal. 
Meanwhile, memories of Hitler's threat of world domination remain lodged in the breast of every American, as did the surprise bombing of Pearl Harbor back in 1941. And despite the U.S. being the richest country in the world, the Soviet Union appeared to be a close second in terms of resources and technology. Following the end of the war, both countries gained access to the remains of Nazi science experiments, which included sizable research into aerospace and rocket engineering. This information was ripe for the taking, so the U.S. and the Soviet Union divided up the spoils. But across the world, the U.S. feared that the USSR was gaining ground on weapons technology, specifically as it related to aerospace warfare. And in light of this, Americans everywhere worried that the Russians might stage a communist takeover of the U.S. This was an unthinkable scenario to the average American. The so-called Red Scare, or fear of communist influence, swept over America in the late 1940s and on into the 50s. It led to a government crackdown on anyone with even supposed communist sympathies, as well as the arrest of a few Soviet agents. In that time, the existence of one spy was held to the same severity as 1,000 spies, compounding the overall paranoia. And the scare was sustained by sensational media reports offering everything from real news to terrified speculation. Even Hollywood participated in the general fear-mongering by blacklisting entertainers rumored to have Soviet ties. These tensions set the stage for an ambiguous and unorthodox war between the United States and the USSR. It would be called the Cold War because it would never come to direct confrontation. Rather, it would be waged via proxy battles, like the Korean War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, ideological debates about communism versus capitalism, and most of all, technological intimidation. In the four years following World War II, anxiety over Soviet weapon power continued to mount by virtue of the fact that the U.S. had absolutely no idea how far along these capabilities actually were. But they were about to receive their first clue. On September 3, 1949, U.S. scientists captured a recording of seismic activity from inside the Soviet Union's borders. It was an underground nuclear test. The USSR had officially harnessed the atomic bomb, matching America's current weapons capabilities. The U.S. government panicked. By early 1950, President Harry S. Truman ordered that the military's budget be increased fourfold. He also accelerated plans for the second stage of nuclear weapons research, the hydrogen bomb. After all, the only thing to do if another country is harboring weapons of mass destruction is to build even better ones. By November of 1952, the U.S. had proudly announced the successful test of its first ever hydrogen bomb, or hell bomb, as the public knew it. The Soviet Union responded by testing their own version in August of 1953, less than a year later. America was now completely unnerved. 
To illustrate the paranoia, on July 21, 1955, President Dwight D. Eisenhower offered the Open Skies proposal, which, if it was accepted, would mutually allow the U.S. and the Soviet Union to fly over each other's territories in order to ensure that each country was complying with international arms control agreements. Naturally, the Russians declined with their current leader Nikita Khrushchev declaring that the proposal was nothing more than an espionage plot. This, of course, was true, and President Eisenhower knew such a plan would never be accepted. Rather, it helped him to escalate other government-funded ideas, such as the development of U-2, high-altitude spy planes, which would be ready in just two more years. Meanwhile, Another plan was in the works, which would allow the U.S. to spy on the Soviet Union from even farther off. In 1955, America was in the early stages of building a satellite. If successful, it would be the first object placed into orbit in outer space and a huge statement about America's ostensible superiority in matters of science. And no one was more groomed for this achievement than the American public. The mass publicity surrounding the Red Scare only spurred on what was already an era of extreme patriotism and capitalist enthusiasm in the U.S. World War II had produced an economic boom, leading to increased innovation and better education initiatives. And this perpetuated excitement and speculation over where such advancements were headed. The U.S. government produced space propaganda in the form of posters to encourage public interest in its satellite initiatives and potential space travel. And other parties were more than happy to cash in on the excitement. In the early 1950s, Collier's magazine published a series of widely circulated science features called Man Will Conquer Space Soon. Even Walt Disney got in on the space mania. In 1955, he opened the first Disneyland theme park, which included Tomorrowland, an area entirely devoted to space fantasy. And over the next few years, Disney released a three-part TV program detailing life in space, despite the fact that no one had ever been there. People like Walt Disney made the space age seem easy and accessible, just barely out of reach. And with so much delightful indoctrination, the average American was primed for the space age and thrilled to learn about its latest advancements. They wouldn't have to wait long for an update. On July 29, 1955, just nine days after the failed Open Skies proposal, the U.S. went public with its plan to put a satellite into orbit. The announcement was a hopeful piece of publicity, and the American public promptly latched on. As they understood it, the satellite would be an exciting scientific endeavor. In reality, it would serve as early testing for a reconnaissance satellite, namely for gathering intel on the Soviets. The Soviet government was less gullible than the American public. When they heard the report, they understood exactly what was going on and they counteracted the publicity by announcing their own satellite initiatives. The Soviet Union's Academy of Sciences had already been at work on a simple satellite technology, and now they hurried to perfect it for the express purpose of beating the U.S. at their launch. The race was afoot. 
and everyone waited with bated breath to see who would launch the first man-made object to ever orbit the Earth. Up next, the Russians win first place in the early rounds of the space race. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. By the mid-1950s, the United States and the USSR were locked in almost a decade of Cold War. A series of indirect escalations born from the aftermath of World War II. Each country fought to intimidate the other in an effort to prove its global preeminence and the viability of capitalism versus communism, while the public looked on anxiously. Advanced weapons and rocket technology were at the heart of the debate. And in the summer of 1955, both countries announced plans to launch an early-stage satellite as part of their so-called space exploration initiatives. But in the U.S., the plan was to eventually use satellites to spy on Soviet weapon power. For the average American, the forthcoming satellite was a welcome bit of hope something to look forward to in the midst of the communist Red Scare that had gripped the U.S. since World War II. Everyone still lived in daily terror of being nuked by the commies. This is evident in the duck-and-cover drills that became commonplace among public schools during the late 40s and 50s. Happy cartoons of a helmeted turtle named Bert showed children how to hide under their desks and cover their necks and faces in the event of a nuclear attack. To some, this period signals an egregious complacency. The U.S. government was training its idle citizens to accept the nuclear age as the status quo. But others, like late historian D. Garrison, have claimed that these drills were traumatizing to children, eventually leading to the anti-war sentiments of the 60s and 70s. Even Bert the Turtle couldn't mask the terror of nuclear warfare. And in 1957, this Red Scare mayhem was about to reach a fever pitch. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union announced the launch of Sputnik 1, a simple 22-inch aluminum satellite weighing less than 200 pounds. It had been carried into orbit using a Soviet R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. To add insult to injury, the small satellite had flown over the United States twice without being detected before it was even announced. A victory lap, or two, if you will. The response in America was one of mass hysteria. Sputnik caused a sort of Pearl Harbor effect, inciting incredible panic across the nation. Largely unaware of what satellites could and couldn't do, the citizens legitimately feared that they could be nuked by a Russian satellite at any moment. Kathleen Lewis, a curator of international space programs at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, recalls the public response, saying, 
For the first time, that harsh reality of the fear of nuclear weapons landing came to life. You were not going to have a warning of fleets of bombers. And even without the threat of total annihilation, the satellite held a deeply negative implication about America's place on the world stage. Up until that point, the average American citizen had believed that the U.S. was technologically superior to its communist enemy. Now, the real capabilities of the Soviet Union were clear. The USSR, not the U.S., had been the first to place an object into space. They were winning. Future President and Senator Lyndon B. Johnson was holding a barbecue at his LBJ ranch in Texas when Sputnik was announced. He would later recall his astonishment, saying, I remember the profound shock of realizing that it might be possible for another nation to achieve technological superiority over this great country of ours. Johnson expressed the disturbance felt by most Americans, and the Russians were about to rub it in even more. On November 3, 1957, less than a month after the launch of Sputnik 1, the USSR announced the successful launch of another satellite, Sputnik 2. Not only was it the second satellite in space, it was the first to carry a living, breathing being. Overnight, a dog named Laika became a sensation as the first animal to ever voyage into space. The hysteria was now transforming. Americans saw their lack of presence in space as a direct affront to the nation's engineering capabilities. And Lyndon B. Johnson was more than happy to lead the blame game on behalf of the Democratic Party. On November 25, 1957, he organized a meeting of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Their goal was to review America's defense and space programs. The subcommittee ultimately condemned President Eisenhower and his Republican Party for what they deemed to be a lack of organization on the space initiatives front and for not offering more funding. It was a petty accusation, considering how much effort Eisenhower was committing towards keeping the country running with public works projects like the interstate highway system. But as Johnson spun it, Eisenhower had failed his country by letting the space race play second fiddle. Many Americans picked up this strain, and Eisenhower was painted as an incompetent golf enthusiast. The governor of Michigan, G. Menon Williams, even wrote a poem about Sputnik that began with the lines, Oh, little Sputnik, flying high, with maiden Moscow beep. You tell the world it's a commie sky, and Uncle Sam's asleep. And it ended with a two-line pot shot at Eisenhower. We hope our golfer knows enough to get us on the ball. It was a classic instance of political party shenanigans, but Eisenhower wasn't about to let himself or his Republican Party succumb to the accusations. He quickly set out to restore America's trust and its international prestige by announcing the test launch of the U.S. satellite Vanguard TV-3 on December 6, 1957. If successful, it would be the first U.S. object sent into space. The entire media was invited to watch the spectacle, which had been developed under the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory and its director, John P. Hagen. 
But what ensued was a highly publicized disaster. During the ignition sequence, the Vanguard TV-3's rocket booster rose three feet above its platform, then burst into flames. Hagen and his team watched as $110 million went up in smoke. It was an extreme embarrassment to both the Naval Research Laboratory and the U.S. government. The fallout would tarnish the president, too. The Vanguard failure compounded American sentiments that Eisenhower had somehow botched his responsibilities. But Eisenhower's pride, and that of the average American, was about to receive a small but reassuring reprieve. In the weeks following the launch of Sputnik 1, the Eisenhower administration had revived Project Orbiter, a satellite experiment that had previously been nixed in favor of Vanguard. Now Project Orbiter was being rebranded as the Explorer Program under the federally funded Jet Propulsion Laboratory in hopes that it would succeed where Vanguard had failed. Their first satellite, Explorer 1, was ready for liftoff by January 31, 1958. And liftoff it did, causing all of America to sigh with relief. They finally had a satellite in space. But the Eisenhower administration was not yet out of hot water. Being on par with the Soviets was a small consolation for a country that still prided itself on being the very best at everything. Second place was very un-American. Thus, in April of 1958, Eisenhower gave in to mounting congressional pressure to create a permanent federal agency for the purpose of civil space exploration. By the time it was signed into effect in July of 1958, the organization would be called the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, and it would absorb the existing NACA, or National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And what's more, Eisenhower was handing NASA a program that had originated in the U.S. Air Force. It was called Project Mercury, and its goal was to put the first man into space before the Soviets. The creation of NASA and Project Mercury's change of hands from a military organization to a civilian one signaled just how much the government's interests had morphed into a public spectacle. Space exploration, born out of the nuclear arms race, was now officially being given a patriotic educational veneer, and America was in it to win it. It was manifest destiny. They had to conquer space, if for no other reason than because they were America. What had begun as a terrifying nuclear arms race had morphed into an extremely expensive endeavor of patriotism and international triumph. But that didn't mean the space race could completely divorce itself from the nefarious, war-oriented aspects that helped to create it. In fact, nuclear weapon power only seemed to breed more showmanship. In 1958, the Air Force assembled a team to investigate the possibility of a nuclear explosion in space. Their target? The moon. That's right. Before we even travel to the moon, we thought about detonating an explosive on it, just so America could show the USSR who's boss. 
Specifically, the U.S. government wanted to know whether it was possible to create a nuclear explosion on the moon so huge that it would be visible from Earth. This demonstration would then send a message to the Soviet Union and the rest of the world about America's superior weapon capabilities and space prowess. Fortunately, this top-secret conspiracy, known as Project A-119, never came to fruition. But from 1958 to the beginning of 1959, a team of 10 brilliant scientists spent all of their time researching the viability of this plan. Even the renowned astronomer Carl Sagan, then only 24 years old, was in on the plot. Project A-119 was especially duplicitous, considering that around the same time, the United States and the USSR were involved in the first stages of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, an ad hoc committee working to ensure that outer space did not become a territorial arena for international warfare. Meanwhile, the USSR continued to gain ground. On January 2, 1959, Luna 1 became the first spacecraft to reach the moon's vicinity. And on September 2nd, Luna 2 reached the lunar surface. The Soviets had made the first contact. The success only continued. On September 14, 1959, a Russian probe crash-landed on the moon. Inside was a small, folded USSR flag. Thus, the USSR had technically put the first flag on the moon, even though it probably burned in the crash. Then, on October 4, 1959, exactly two years after the launch of Sputnik, Luna 3 flew by the moon and photographed most of its far side. The U.S. was beside itself with embarrassment. Such shame factored into a huge political campaign that ultimately landed none other than John F. Kennedy and his vice president, longtime space race advocate Lyndon B. Johnson, in the Oval Office. They had used the Republican Party's so-called failings with the space race to bolster their own image. Now they were determined to prove America's grandeur on a cosmic scale. But before Kennedy had a chance to implement his vision, the USSR delivered their biggest blow yet. Coming up, JFK makes a desperate proposal as public interest wanes. Now, back to the story. In 1961, U.S. President John F. Kennedy had just been sworn in with his vice president's space advocate Lyndon B. Johnson at his side. Both were eager to see America pull ahead in the space race after what had been a series of firsts from the USSR. But before they had a chance to act, the Soviets issued their most devastating blow yet. On April 12, 1961, Russia announced that the spaceflight Vostok 1 had successfully launched, carrying 27-year-old Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. He became the first man to ever go into space. Sergei Khrushchev, son of the USSR's premier, would later say that the celebrations in Russia were akin to those seen on the country's victory day following World War II. It was a massive coup for the Soviet Union. 
and across the globe, Yuri became an overnight sensation, the handsome face of the future. In America, President Kennedy acknowledged the event with solemnity, ordering Vice President Johnson to look into whatever efforts could be made to speed along the U.S. space program. In his eyes, it was crucial to national pride now. At last, news came back regarding what options were available. One suggestion was incredibly dramatic, but Kennedy was equally desperate. Pull out all the stops. Build a rocket to go not just to space, but to the moon. Kennedy took the bait. In the meantime, the president was eager to show America that they could at least stay neck and neck with the USSR's progress. And so Kennedy authorized plans to televise the launch of Mercury Redstone 3, the first rocket to send an American into space. It was equal parts a publicity stunt and a massive risk. Everyone wondered if another Vanguard-type explosion was going to happen, this time with a man inside. But Kennedy stubbornly maintained his decision. In the end, it paid off. The rocket didn't combust. In fact, it sent 37-year-old astronaut Alan Shepard into space on May 5, 1961. America felt it was back on par with Russia, in spite of coming in second as usual. Despite the progress, gaining silver medals still didn't sit well with Kennedy. On May 25, 1961, one month after the Soviets' latest victory, Kennedy stood before Congress to request an additional $7 to $9 billion to fund the U.S. space program. Then he issued a dramatic announcement. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. It was an ambitious goal, born out of pure desperation and the presumption that the USSR didn't have advanced enough rocket technology. And just like that, a new bar was set. In spite of how high it loomed, both countries rushed to prove that they could reach the arbitrary prize first. But the excitement of the government wasn't trickling down to the American public. Quite the opposite. They seemed to be growing wary. Lofty promises were nothing in comparison to what had already been delivered. Disney's Tomorrowland, space novels, TV shows, and astronaut toys. And without any groundbreaking innovations by the U.S., it seemed clear that the only thing that would stir the enthusiasm of everyday Americans was an actual first-time victory. And although the air of patriotism was still strong, Americans had plenty of reasons to be skeptical that the U.S. could claim first place on what seemed like the hardest space initiative to date. In a Gallup poll from 1969, 53% of the public expressed that they were against the expensive man-on-the-moon project. The U.S. government, though, was long past waiting for a public blessing. Forget democracy. This was an administrative decision born of pride and the desire to finally win, no matter what the cost. The government made good on its intentions. On February 20th, 1962, barely a year after President Kennedy's election, 
John Glenn became the first American man to orbit the Earth, circling it three times in less than five hours. America finally had one first under their belt. But races can be lost in the millisecond of glancing back over one's shoulder. Nothing indicated this more than June 16, 1963, when Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman to travel into space. Scrambling, the U.S. tried to diversify its strategy to get to the moon. It pumped $2 billion into projects Gemini and Apollo. But the daily minutiae of developing rocket science, quite literally, wasn't something to make the American public swoon. There was nothing exhilarating about the long wait. And as excitement waned, so did the fear that had initially spawned the space race. U.S.-Soviet relations were improving ever since the peaceful settlement of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a proxy battle, in 1962. Since then, both countries had signed a treaty about the open-air testing of nuclear weapons. As quickly as it had been heightened, the USSR's threat to the U.S. was essentially fading away. America's injections of money into the space program, over $20 billion, seemed unnecessary and wasteful now that national security was no longer a preeminent concern. President Kennedy understood the situation as well as anyone, but he couldn't give up on the space race. Not after it had been the crux of his campaign, not after he had promised to put a man on the moon. And so, in September 1963, he gave a speech at the United Nations Council. In it, he offered a dramatic compromise. Kennedy suggested that the Soviets and the U.S. actually combine their efforts to reach the moon. It was a shocking statement from the man who, unlike Eisenhower, had plunged headfirst into winning the space race. And it showed just how desperate Kennedy was to be done with the whole affair. It also showed just how far the race had gotten away from its original suspect motives. And even though the Soviets ultimately declined, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei, would later say that his father began to have second thoughts. But this option was completely nixed less than two months later when President Kennedy was assassinated by a communist sympathizer, no less. His vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, eagerly picked up the space race torch. This had been his pet project ever since the subcommittee where he grilled the Eisenhower administration for not investing more heavily in the competition. And unlike Kennedy, he was not about to share an American victory with communist Russia. After five more years of research, on December 21st, 1968, Apollo 8 became the first manned spaceship to ever orbit the moon. And on Christmas Eve, the three celebrity astronauts, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, took turns reading the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis from the Bible. It was the ultimate flex of America's moral ideals and its manifest destiny perception. And an estimated quarter of the Earth's population listened to the broadcast. The public was intrigued once more. Meanwhile, the bar set by Kennedy still lingered overhead, and Johnson's administration was determined to reach it. 
The U.S. conducted two more space missions, Apollo 9 and 10, to test the lunar module landing craft. Then finally, nearly 25 years after they started, they were ready. On July 20, 1969, at 10.56 p.m. Eastern Time, an estimated 600 million people across the world were riveted by their television screens. In the United States, the scene from household to household was that of the quintessential American dream. Families piled together on the couch in front of their TV sets. Fathers and mothers balanced small children on their laps, while teenagers reclined on the rug. Less than seven hours before, Apollo 11 had reached the moon. Now, the door to the lunar module was open. American astronaut Neil Armstrong descended the ladder. Everyone was waiting for the one moment that would define a decade and usher in a new era of human achievement. The first man to set foot on the moon. Armstrong hovered on the last step before planting his left boot on the moon's surface. Then he spoke. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for man. It was a quote that would go down in history. A magnanimous statement for an accomplishment that, by all other trappings, could only belong to one country. Nearly 240,000 miles away, the Earth was small and silent. No matter. The U.S. had proven its global preeminence. It beat the Soviet Union in putting a man on the moon, thus arbitrarily clinching its title as the world superpower. It was over. America had won the space race. Or had it? In terms of firsts, Russia had been the first to launch a satellite, put a man into orbit, put a woman into orbit, reached the moon, photographed the moon, put a flag on the moon, and make contact with the lunar surface. A pretty hefty list. But it hardly mattered. In the U.S., the moon landing would go down in history as a badge of national pride. After all, Kennedy said we would do it, and we did. We snagged the golden trophy. By the power of this achievement, America replaced a feeling of flailing madness with a sense of dignity and control. And at the end of the day, it's what we remember that counts, right? Maybe not. We've only scratched the surface of the space program's controversies. Next week, we'll be back with an episode on Operation Paperclip, a top-secret program by the U.S. military that recruited German scientists to help American rocket development. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Ali Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.